to be Saturday? What day is it today? Wednesday. Exactly. Welcome to Film Fight Club. I'm Glenn Falconstein from Falcon Screen. We are joined by Sydney filmmaker Chris Evans. Oh, yeah. And freelance writer and critic Rotten Nehru. I have returned, much like James He has. It's been six years. There's been a two-year delay since the intended already announced release of No Time to Die. It is in cinemas now. We are finally very excited you covered it. It is mine and Virat's favourite film series, so we have a lot to talk about. Come the podcast, we're going to be talking No Time to Die spoilers, as well as a little bit more about the Sydney Film Festival On Demand series. Before we do that, we want to touch very quickly on news of the week. The British Film Festival continues, as does the Italian Film Festival around the country. Uh, the Japanese Film Festival is in full swing in Sydney from tomorrow, the 25th. The Melbourne Poet Film Festival continues. The Sydney Science Fiction Film Festival continues online. Philmonic Melbourne is happening tonight during our session. So you can uh, tune into that later. The Scandinavian Film Festival, long awaited, arrived in Sydney yesterday. And Static Vision Film Collective have a weekend of film making dreamscapes in Melbourne come tomorrow night. And then following that in Sydney come December 1st through 5th at Pink Flamingo, there'll be an equivalent and very similar program. And now we continue with No Time to Die. No Time to Die is in cinemas now. It is the 25th James Bond film. It is the fifth and final, officially second time, final Bond film starring Daniel Craig. I say that, it sounds saccharine. I, I'm glad he's back. Did they did like ever officially say a previous one was the final Daniel Craig Bond though, right? There was just kind of... No, but he said I'd rather split my wrist than do another Bond film, which kind of felt like he didn't want to do it. It was was a negotiating tactic. It was a very good negotiating tactic. Reportedly, they actually did drive a truck of money up to his house. It was worth it. It is also starring Leia Sadu, Rami Malek, Ray Fiennes, and Adam Armas, which we'll talk about further. Uh, It is, by way of plot explanation, a James Bond film, which doesn't quite do justice, and we'll get into that in a moment. We'll talk about spoilers come... The podcast. I, I think before we get into the degree, I have a few one among a number of general observations. James Bond, like Mission Impossible, like a lot of the major franchises, have moved from serialization to anthologization. This became really marked in the early Craig era, and it's become it seems like the raising doctrine of the series at this moment. I don't actually mind that. I don't think it's happened with No Time to Die, but I wonder if the series continues on this path that it will lose the simple enjoyment of individual installments. I think Quantum of Solace, I let the series down in this regard. I don't think you can enjoy that without really appreciating the scene or L. I think you can enjoy No Time to Die as a standalone installment. I, I don't mind anthologization, but I think with Marvel, and we've seen this a little bit with James Bond, there's an issue where enjoyment is dependent upon, from a commercial perspective, seeing the others. And I think from a pure narrative perspective, where you should just be able to enjoy a film when it's lonesome, um, that in minor respects, that lets no time to die down. It's the rise of the TV storytelling HBO model. You know, it's infected everything in, in entertainment where it's like, okay, people like getting invested in a story over a long time and watching the next episode. And But the thing is, with things like the MCU or James Bond, to me, you can never really get the joy of a serialized TV show. Because like you're watching something made by a number of different creators where each episode has its own kind of different tone and feel, even though there's consistent characters, they don't really feel like a serial to me. They feel like different movies pretending to be aligned with each other. James are more so than Mission Impossible and the other ones that have moved to, we have to have these um, installed by installment. Yeah. Um, t- turning to 
everyone talks about who the best James Bond is. I honestly think it's Daniel Craig. Um, he has done something that I think Dalton tried to do but couldn't do so extensive course of two films, and it's developed a real character, James Bond. Importantly, I think each of the six actors have done so, but there is a much more distinctive character. He does the action scenes, does the physicality, he does the charm, he does the one-liners. He's had the longest tenure as Bond. I like Connery. I like Dalton a lot, but Dalton only had two films. Yeah. I think Craig uh, collectively is the best. And I think I, I think that was solidified with Spectre, but I think it was really solidified with this film. I think Dalton would be my favorite if he were given the opportunity to do many more, but I, I like Craig as Bond. But I, I don't know. I was ready to move on from Daniel Craig in this role by the end of this film, though. I, I don't know. So there's something about like the the kind of maybe it's not so much Craig who is excellent as it is the kind of dreary tone that comes with him. I mean, just to play devil's advocate, he is uh, Daniel Craig is quite old, and he his age does show in some sequences, and that was a bit not of a, like Roger Moore though. You, you see, That's I disagree. Here's the thing: Roger Moore was significantly older. Um, Connery, Craig was actually one of the youngest to start the role. Craig was 36 when he started, Brosnan was 42, Moore and Connery were 39. But Craig has had the longest tenure. But remember, the strange thing with Craig is, Moore's a little bit of an exception with Craig, it's because it's been 15 years, you can see the gamut from young upstart to Riri, we're about to go into Roger Moore territory because I'm tired of tired and over this. Unfortunately, I think Skyfall kickstarted this because you had two films that were at the immediate beginning of this Bond's career, and suddenly you're talking about old dog new tricks a few years later. So they very quickly wanted to talk about Craig from a has-been Bond perspective, but didn't really have this big middle era where he's just going on adventures. So I think I, I think Craig is done with the series. I think he did it because of the enormous pile of literal enormous pile of money. So it doesn't bother me that with respect to age and all the age of any other characters, if he can do the physicality role, if he can pull the role, I believe he does here. So it, that, that didn't bother me at all. Yeah, I mean, it's not like he can't do the physical uh, moves and stuff, but uh, yes, maybe you're right. Maybe that's, that's actually the point where he never had a middle error. And suddenly with Skyfall, Spectre, and now No Time to Die, you have three back-to-back Bond films where the stick is that, you know, you, you were time, you're man out of time, and basically, it's old dog playing new tricks kind of thing. So it, it does feel that he's leaning into the older Bond more than the younger Bond, even though you're right, he started as the youngest Bond. But I do have to give this film credit in respects. A lot of the Bond, back in prior to the really Skyfall, there were only individual installments where, you know, MI6 and itself hung in the balance with this heavy meta aspect to the series what was not enough being an example and then for several successive films it was um all about mi6 falling apart it was really going to we have to do something quote unquote special here i'm just fine with bond going on adventures i, know, I, I actually to... went back to a more traditional oh we're just going to see a guy wanting to uh, destroy the world something we'll get into in a little bit i want to see mi6 be capable and not compromised for once i get that they want to reflect the bond series and they want to reflect the social milieu that drove the popularity of the bond series of we don't trust the government conspiracies are everywhere I mean, it makes sense why people don't want to trust a government agent in this day and age. But just in terms of pure plot, it's getting boring to see, you know, MI6 is compromised and Bond has to go rogue every time. Mission Impossible is the same, by the way, but James Bond has a more storied history 
Can we not go back to some of the other ways? Mission Impossible did it from Mission Impossible 1. Like that was the actual coda of, of that series where- That's true. The, Is Mission Impossible 2 the rogue. only one where he doesn't have to go rogue? Uh, Oh, let me think about this. Three, uh, yes, it is the only one yes. where he does he. It's time yes, to the only one where he doesn't have to go rogue. If DIA were right in the last one. It's time to get rid of the IMF. Yeah, they, they, they were totally on board. <laughs> and it's probably time to get rid of MI6 too because it's worse than what Chris has said. I don't. This series and this film in particular, to its credit, have a internal logic. Obviously, all Bond films are insane, but this one is consistently insane, which is fine as long as. Um, as a consistent level, I'm good with that. The problem is that the entire plot hinges on not just MI6 screwing up, but repeatedly screwing up in morbid, insane, world-ending ways. Yeah. And come on, Very if I saw, you should fire these guys, like get rid of them, dissolve them, get the IMF in, I mean, for their level, <laughs> relative to the level of competence, come on. Okay, I, um, I saw this film as a satire as to like how governments keep screwing up and yet we keep electing them because that's our only choice. Anyway. A little bit. Okay. A little bit. There are funny bits where like, how could you get away with bombing this? Surely this foreign powerful nation might have something to say about this. Okay, so one thing we've skipped over, what's it about beyond, I mean, you've kind of summed it up by saying it's a James Bond movie. What's it actually about? The Terra Australis Readers and Writers Festival is on this weekend. An online international crime and mystery literary festival. A criminally good lineup. Anne Cleves, Val McDermott, Gary Disher, Candace Fox, Solari Gentile, Anita Heiss, and more. There's interviews, book clubs, masterclasses, and panels. Hurry, get your tickets for this online event at terraaustralisfestival.com. Terra Australis Festival sponsors 2SER. 107.3. What it is about, it's actually a very cool basic plot from the reading of this film about a guy who is, uh, who has an impact we see on Madeleine Swan and her family in an earlier time in her life, played by Leia Sadu, and he's from this individual's relationship with Spectre. The antagonism between the villain in this and Spectre is something that I thought was really, really interesting. That's a great and it's an original, original plot for a James Bond series. Unfortunately, there's an event that happens halfway through the film where that switches and that motivation changes. And following that, it just turns into a very broad, nondescript, we want to um, you know, get rid of the world and all that. Now, to be very clear, I don't have a problem with villains in James Bond films who just want to you know, burn everything down. But you look at the comparable villains in other films, and there's always a reason for it. In Moonraker, the guy was a eugenicist and thought he was better than other people. In The Spy Who Loved Me, he was an environmentalist and wanted to save the ocean. So there's a little bit of social commentary underlying these films, whereas in this one, it's just, oh, they'll accept that this guy, Thanos okay. Star, wants to destroy the world. It's actually not good enough, even I, for Bond look, films. I, I agree that the villain sucks, but before we get onto that- It always sucks. It sucks for the- only the second half of the film. I have to explain what the film is. He didn't say he was decent. He wasn't. James Bond is reunited with Madeline Swan at the end of the last film, Spectre. And uh, at the beginning, he's what he thinks is a betrayal from her. So the two go their separate ways. MI6 have messed things up again. So they need to go back and find Bond because he's the only person that Blofeld, who is under the capture of MI6, will speak to. So Madeline Swan and Bond are drawn back together and uh, Spectre seemed to be involved, but there's another man pulling the strings. Could it be Academy Award winner Rami Malek? Back to you, Glenn. Could it be? He's good in this. This is the thing. The, all the actors around Craig, oh, Craig is good, but Alea Sadu and Rami Malek are just operating on 
other levels. I think Malik is someone who, like, again, to use the Mission Impossible analogy, Philip Seymour Hoffman, can handle the I just want to burn everything down mentality. They've really deferred to the classic Bond villain tropes here. Russian with, you know, facial scars. You're, you'll be bad. Well, you'll this be film is a bit of a throwback, I mean, right? Yeah. This is this is a contemporary Bond, but um, I was talking to somebody the, but the other day and they were talking about at the beginning the symbolism of Bond trapped in the 50s car. It's not exactly a 50s car, but like it's the throwback. And this film is really playing on, I think, one, Dr. No, and two, uh, on Her Majesty's Secret Service. There's a lot of uh, homages to those two films running throughout. There's homages to other Bond ones, but those were, I think, the most consistent threads. Um, but yes, Rami Malek, I think he did a decent enough job. I don't think he was amazing in it, but he was good enough. But the issue for me was that um, I don't think his character is that well written. I think his motivation is unclear and uh, he's taken extremely seriously. at all. Sure, but you know, when, when it really becomes about him and, and exploring him in the, in the second half and explaining what that motivation was, they're trying very hard to present this as extremely serious, but a sillier tone would have worked when it, at the end of the day, um, what everything seems to boil down to is ha 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 ha, I am bad. I think, I think you've hit the nail on the head. This is a very silly movie with no internal logic, as Glenn just pointed out. But that's not what I said at all. I said there is consistent internal logic, even if it's insane. That's my point. Okay, okay, sorry. Consistently insane internal logic, which, which, okay would, which would work in a silly movie, except it's trying to be super serious all the time, which is what sort of... There's some silly scenes early on. There's some silly scenes. For me, the serious parts are kind of like, I think of it like a lot of the Marvel films, particularly Guardians of the Galaxy 2, where how they treat Yondu, where they have these bits where there's this indiscriminate killing and you're supposed to have fun with this, but then they want you to really invest in James Bond as a character. I don't I think we shouldn't have to invest in James Bond as a character, but there is a surface level of engagement which doesn't come unless you have a film like Last to Kill, which is a nitty gritty, okay, we're really seeing the impact of small scale violence here. Whereas here it's on, there's a scene later in the film, it's decently staged, but it's just the video game involving a set of stairs and you can't switch really and the film doesn't really manage to flick from that to the super sincere elements which it uses to anchor um, the final scenes of the film. I agree um, and uh, on, you hit the nail on the head earlier on when we were talking about Rami Malek and you were saying in the first half of the film because this film hits a point where it goes rapidly downhill. Every single person I've spoken to who's seen it agrees exactly the second half it's 90 minutes in. Well, I think it's still it good, but the first, like, nearly two hours, it is a very long film. It is an indulgently long film. Too long. Um, much stronger than the later half. I did enjoy the later half. And I think... It, yeah, sorry. Just everything about it becomes, I think, more just kind of by the book in that second so, half. So operatic. It, it goes into homage territory, and it's a... Well, it's, it's a send-off to Craig. It's opera, just as long as it's consistent. A lot of the Bond films are soap operas. And this is another thing, just in terms of the internal logic of the film, the cachet of Bond, and something I've always loved, is up until Dying of the Day, they've always had believable, practical action. This means they, they stage smaller scale stuff, and that's fine, because I know stunt persons doing amazing work. In this, and in the past few films, but really in this, 
they're pushing increasingly, increasingly for CGI. And there's one scene early in the film and it mirrors a scene in Skyfall where you see Craig running on, going on a motorcycle doing these stunts, you know it's not real. I think that that lets down the Bond films a bit. We accept the level of artifice in films and certainly more so with I think Bond films where we know it's a stunt person doing cool stunts. We just want to see the stunts. The amazing scene in Italy where he jumps onto the funeral procession, that was actually filmed for real, but because of the CGI they added to it, it just looks and feels kind of fake. And I wish, you, you, you referred to the old absurd um, more error. Even in the view to a kill, the scenes, the Paris car chase and jump off the Apple Tower, that's real. You know it's real. And there's compulsion and a kick from it. And even dummy falling on the bloody barge was better than a lot of the CGI in this. And I wish they'd move back to the, I think, what people expect and really enjoy from the series. And it didn't a lot in this film. Well, to mention Mission Impossible Fallout again, um, at the beginning of that movie, there's a scene that they filmed for real with Tom Cruise jumping out of the plane. But when you look at it, because they added these CGI storm clouds to it, you register the whole thing as CGI. Same mistake, yeah, same mistake here in this film. If you film something for real, leave the image alone. Because once you start adding all these digital elements everywhere, the mind sees them and the mind is so conditioned to think everything I'm looking in front of me is a, is a computer trick that once you're registering those, the, any, the verisimilitude is out the window. And perfect, and perfectly to Chris's point as an analogist, almost exactly 20 years to go to the day prior to Fallout, Tomorrow Never Dies filmed a Halo jump. And it was great. It was great. Yeah. And it registers as real. Yeah. Now, there's a lot of elements to this film where people are going to say, you can't do that. You're going outside the conventions of James Bond, uh, particularly elements of the ending, which we'll discuss um, later in the spoiler that. section. However, I actually disagree with this. There's always been a consistency with Bond where... Um, there's the renewal of character. Every new Bond is a character. Sometimes um, actors join new Bonds. Sometimes Bonds join new actors. And money pennies and M's and Q's will stay on. Bond is loose and all, And this is consistent yeah. with how they've handled. Yeah, some story. things are consistent. Some things aren't. They get to pick and choose. Uh, Bond can have its own canon. I'm fine with that. But yeah. I, I think to discuss um, the ramifications of this, we'll have to go into the spoiler episode. Uh, so, you know. Absolutely. Uh, iTunes and Spotify, wherever else good podcasts are found, uh, you can hear the rest of those thoughts at the 30-minute mark, roughly, of the episode. Yep. Anyway. Now in its 25th year, the Japanese Film Festival Australia is back in Sydney cinemas from November 25 to December 5th. Featuring action, romance, mystery, comedy, documentary, and of course, anime, with a special Shuji Teriyama retrospective included. For more information, visit japanesefilmfestival.net. The Japanese Film Festival Australia, presented by the Japan Foundation Sydney, proudly sponsors to SCR. You're listening to Film Fight Club and 2 with Glenn Falkenstein, Chris Evans and Bharat Nehru. Um, before we get into some of the technical aspects, I just want to note Bond has, I think, mostly not exclusively due to Diamonds of Forever, um, very unfortunate and bad history as regards LGBT representation. And there's a scene in this film where a character mentions casually um, that they're that they're gay. And I think that's great. I think that's a good form of representation. I think the series in many respects has come a long way. And another element the series has been very criticized for is um, its depiction of women and misogyny. I think importantly, and I, I appreciate the Craig films have done this. They haven't actually changed the character. They've just moved the perception for the most part from being someone you glamorize to being a tragic figure that you wouldn't want to emulate. 
So I think that's fine. I think it's okay to portray this behavior as long as it's part of the lens of this is what we clearly think of this character. And I think the Craig films are mostly good in that regard, including this one. So I give the film credit for that. I think they mostly strike a good balance. Um, I think a lot of people have difficulty these days with the idea that endorsement is not the same as depiction. Yeah. And I agree, Bond is a tragic figure. I think Bond works best as a tragic figure. I think we're sick um, today of this kind of person just being glamorized and you can't, you can't play straight Bond you know, as, a, as an empowerment figure. Maybe we'll get more into this when we get into the spoilers, but you talking about the idea of bringing up to date the representation of women and LGBT representation and things like that. Um, it always runs us up against this idea that Bond is a figure of the past. So I, I don't know, I was going to open a can of worms. We probably shouldn't get into this now and stick to the film, but it's all, sort of like, why should we keep making Bond films and try to modernize them instead of just sort of moving on from this character. Fine, Gold and I started it, and this like the whole this the line in Quantum of Solace. I have no friends. Like, yeah, I figure that you're a person who would have friends, and that's not good. Um, you're not yeah. someone who would want to sort of like put on the lead. You don't want to have a beer with Bond. That's the thing. A Heineken with the with the logo showing it toward the camera. You mean such an arrogant prick. Like honestly. Yeah. yeah. But um, yeah, you know, the first ninety minutes of this movie is so visually inventive and cool, right? Like, the, there's a raid early on with a spinning camera that um. I thought it was one of the best staged action scenes I'd ever seen in a Bond movie. The opening action before the opening, the credits was terrific. In the screening I was in, people cheered. Um, there's interesting plot twists, etc. cetera. Uh, it's it's very well and there's momentum to this film. Yes. Yes. And the characters early on, at least, are interesting, at least within the template of this plot. They're interesting. Yeah. We have to talk about Anna Armas. Yes. Anna Armas is the real takeaway from this. And this is a big call, and, but relative to the amount of time she spends on screen, I honestly think she's the best Bond girl. She's it's a short period, but she's very, very good. And to be clear, she's good in terms of that. She's both the action, she does the action-driven stuff amazingly well. The physicality in the scene is good. She's incredibly funny, but she also manages this converse guilelessness. And let's just be blunt, she's great to look at. Like, she, she hits all the criteria of what a Bond girl is. She's someone, a character or a figure I could totally see just appearing in multiple Bond films. There's no reason if we can't have M's and other characters and Felix Lattis appearing here and there, we can't have a recurring character like this. Um, Paloma, she's absolutely amazing. I, I loved her in this. Um, I can't, like, no, no faults at all. I mean, it, it's been a while since we've had a Bond girl who's given teenage boys bad dreams. So, I mean, Welcome back to the original Bond girl uh, band. I, I feel like it's been like one Bond film since then. But, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but that feels like really a long time. It feels like a long time because of the gap. Leah Sado fans are sitting there just thinking, excuse me? Yeah, look, dude, you're severely underestimating the horniness of teenage boys, okay? <laughs> they have imaginative minds. <laughs> They're inventive. But let's not get, go into those sordid waters. Yeah. Um, Anna Diamas, right? Her character is a great reversal in the way that she initially is portrayed as a ditz and then flips that impression on her head without the movie looking like it's trying to score points, without the movie loudly announcing, look, we're actually being progressive. Look how she, you know, it's it's just properly played into the, the plot and it, it's fun to watch. And the action no scene Marvel that she girl gets power moment. Sorry? There's no Marvel girl boss moment, thankfully. Exactly, exactly. The script for this film is way too smart for that. And you know, around the, this point in the film, I was actually having a similar thought. So it's funny you say that, 
which is it's so refreshing to be watching a big budget, well-written action movie that is not following the Marvel formula because that, that studio and its imitators have dominated nearly everything, or at least that's how it feels in the blockbuster space. So back to this action scene with Ana Diamaz, it's fun, it's silly. It incorporates the idea of Bond's alcoholism in a really funny and inventive way where, you know, drinks are coming his way and he's downing them while, <laughs> while shooting. I forgot about that, so good. And there's teamwork. There's teamwork between him and the other uh, important new female character, female agent in this film that's really well choreographed. Um, this whole uh, section of the film, for, you know, is... As I said before, inventive in the action, inventive in the visuals. I would say, though it doesn't have such tricky cinematography as Skyfall, overall, I feel like this film's better invented and more visually striking than Skyfall. So of recent ones, right up there at the top. Um, yeah, lots of interesting plot twists. Uh, the way Blofeld is used in this, I would say that um, Christoph Waltz is wasted in this as he was Inspector. He's still um, good. I, I still but, enjoyed seeing him. But he's still good. And the way he's used in the plot is interesting at this point in the narrative. You're trying to see how all the threads will come together. It's going in weird it's and eerie. How he's yeah, saying. it's eerie. Um, in following up this Anadim Amaz action scene, it's going in interesting directions. How's it all going to come together? It's a, it's a little bit unpredictable at this point. And then... And then, all right, before we, yeah, before we get into the, some of the things that are lesser, um, <coughs> excuse me, Lasana Lynch as 007 is very, very good. Again, Hannah's the action scene, uh, she's really funny, and uh, someone you could absolutely believe could be a double agent in this universe, so thoroughly enjoyed her appearance. Some she context, also has... Sorry, some context there, because Bond's retired and uh, gone off the radar at the beginning of this film, there's a new 007. Importantly, she has the only good one-liner in the film it's the title drop it's very very good the other one line is mostly not good and that's where I have to talk some elements like like so the writing of the quote-unquote Bond girls are great the hench persons in this film leave a great deal to be desired Billy McNusson is playing this dude bro or as Craig says at this Book of Mormon figure he's very boring the Book of Mormon guy that was a good one liner you have to give credit where credit's due it's a little bit funny it's a little I, bit I, funny a little bit funny, sure. It was, it was my second favorite, in, 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 in relatively speaking. Um, the other villain, who is referred to as Cyclops, Ugh. is just kind of boring. And I think it's not the writing, it's the actor here. It, it, it really hammy. You look at um, Del Toro in License to Kill. It's not yes. a very well-written character. But Del Toro is just so goddamn amazing, it makes it work. Here is a more well-written character played by a lesser actor. And it's just kind of, he's entirely forgettable, unfortunately. It's just the shtick. It's just the gimmick of like, here's a Bond character. But there's also some issues with how this guy's writing and figured it into the narrative that UC has done. I keep teasing what we'll talk about in the spoiler thing. I should I should zip my mouth shut. Yeah, but we'll get to the spoiler. I, I want to mention... While there's never, there's an elegant hark back to the first couple of films um, involving Vesper at the beginning of this. I really liked that. I never, I never thought that Leia Seydoux and Craig had quite the chemistry um, that the pair had in the first film. However, I, I think Seydoux is great. Um, I like this aspect of the story. There's a very moving scene where um, we, he cover, we cover his relationship with Vesper early in the film. Oh, so this film involves nanobots, and I know people are laughing at this, but I think the nanobots are cool. Why can't nanobots well, be in Bond? Why, why not? Cool. Like, Bond has had an invisible car. What's so weird about nanobots? I think that was the most believable thing about the film. I was like, okay, cool. It's finally to be Bond. Yeah. 
Yeah. Um, I, so we'll talk about the villain's lair and spoilers. I really liked the production design here. It was yeah. a really cool space. Mm. It reminded me again of Dr. No and You Only Live Twice and some of the classically staged lairs. Also in this part of the world that isn't, I guess, as well known in Western culture. So it had an air, a, a air of... Criticism. Bunch ties to its past. You know, before we go into spoiling it, though, can we say before we wrap up this episode why we think it starts to falter in the second half? For me, it got bogged down in the dreariness of it. For me, this the emotional sincerity stopped coming across so much. I started to feel like the film was overplaying this kind of deep sincerity. What did you guys think? Absolutely. I think uh, my biggest problem was it became too apparent for me in the last hour that they were trying to go for this big emotionally resonant moment and building up to that and nothing was landing and nothing felt as if uh, any of that was actually important. And even when the, when the moment comes, it felt like, you know, uh, off with a bang, but with a whimper kind of a thing. It just it felt that felt you can't go, you, you, you just, you just can't anchor this sort of sincerity so immediately and so often after Absolutely. the play out like GoldenEye, the video game, not the film, importantly. Yeah. Where, and and it, it can be done. Look again to GoldenEye with the archive scene where a lot of people are dying, but it feels sincere. It feels like, okay, we're reckoning with the cost of the loss of human life here. And this comes back in the scenes where he's talking to the Italian in Cuba. So this can be done well in a Bond film. It just wasn't done well here, or at least attempted here. And we flipped from this very pulpy storytelling where you're enjoying the twists and turns to um, the deeply serious kind of tone where even the action scenes have this kind of dreary feel. I don't think that that sentiment, as you were saying, Glenn, was anchored properly in the film. And I think even as it moves into we're going to the villain's lair, a lot of that material is lacking the visual invention and the twistiness. It's more just kind of staid and heavy and... I think this was a miscalculation, but we'll get onto this further shortly on the podcast. talking before we get into the spoilers for no time to die the sydney film festival final wrap yeah so on the weekend me and Virat watched radiograph of a family and i also watched reconciliation um as part of the on demand it was a pretty hectic weekend for me i wish i had time to talk about and watch more films um hopefully i'll be able to catch up with some of the other movies i was planning on watching on the on demand later but in brief reconciliation uh, has an amazing concept. It's about somebody who was uh, is being asked to forgive the person who accidentally, but there seems to be a degree of ambiguity here. The murder was not intentional, but to what degree was there an intent to cause harm, et cetera? Seems to be an accident. Anyway, 
in Albania, where there's a tension between Christian morality and the old-fashioned morality um, and legal codes, which suggest that a year after somebody's murdered, if some the other family hasn't paid in blood, forgiveness can be granted um, in exchange for money or acts of humility. And uh, it's incredible in the sense of some of the raw emotion that's captured in this film with the tension between the family that doesn't want to go along with this saying, you know, money's not going to do anything. And you're asking me to believe in these, these laws over Jesus Christ. And what's the point of any of this? And the community that's saying, come on, come on, be reasonable, go along with this. And the other family who really are not showing that much remorse or because this involves a long standing blood feud, fascinating concept, Scenes of high emotion are captured, but the actual documentary is kind of plodding, um, not that well structured, I think, and features a lot of scenes that maybe were designed for symbolic import, like many scenes showing the selection and the building of this, this cross installation that's being installed, but ultimately it just slows the thing down. Um, I think it's a case of a documentary being notable because the, the person was there at the, in the right place at the right time with the camera, but the actual craft isn't there. On the other hand, Radiograph of a Family, I'd compare to Flea, another yeah. film we spoke about from the Sydney Film Festival, in that it uses reconstructions based on memories, dramatizations based on memories, this time not with animation, but mostly with um, stock footage and with photos and voiceovers played over photos of the director's family. This film is extremely well-structured and extremely well-made. It's an Iranian family in the backdrop of the Iranian revolution in 1979 yeah. and how the country changes from a more progressive to a more traditionally fundamentalist Islamic society. So that that's change right. mirrored into her personal life as her own family becomes more conservative. It's a very interesting conceit and it's followed through throughout the film. And I found that to be so compelling as to I tell agree. a personal story through a political way. And the, the way that the, there's a mirror going on here, as you said, Barack, Early on, um, it it's, it, this film is basically showing the divide in Iranian culture and society. Because early on, um, the, when we're telling the story of the director's mother, she comes from a very like religious fundamentalist family. And she ends up moving to Switzerland and uh, seeing a different kind of life. And she's being asked to leave behind her ideals and modernize. Yeah. And uh, she struggles with that. Then when she goes back to Iran, she sees with him later on, she sees another side of Iran she didn't know existed which is very similar to what she saw in Switzerland. So there's that, that divide in Iran, and she becomes part of um, the revolutionary forces pushing it in the direction of religious fundamentalism. Ultimately, the director herself is, is, you know, has the life that she was brought up with torn away from her because of this in the same way that her mother did. Um, it's a, a incredible. It's a simple but really powerful story that shows you the the power of religion and the the um, way that we're all slaves of fundamental. But also, but also how this kind of narrative is beautifully structured together through found footage, uh, a bit of family photographs. It, it has Kurosawa's twenty four frames feel to it sometimes because a lot of times you have photographs that have a lot of history behind them which is unveiled while you're looking at a photograph. And then you go back to traverse between found footage and a memoir style documentary as well. So I love different styles being used seamlessly together, which is not like, consistent to one thing, but it's, it's also- dramatic, 
yeah. family slideshow with this conceit of like camera gliding through this house and the way that the house changes. The use of that, the, the shot gliding through the house reminds me of Tarkovsky's The Mirror, which is another film that uses found footage and reflects yeah. um, autobiography in an interesting way. I, yeah, I, I really love this film. I, yeah. It was such a sincere and simple um, act of empathy in trying to understand her parents and what they went through. Sometimes the um, emotional directness like that works the best. You don't need to, it's just a, a, a brilliant conceit and you don't need to try really hard to move people like No Time to Die, which we're about to get back into. Sometimes just being simple and honest is the best way. And, um, and the, the power of this story um, sells itself, you know? And it, it, this movie, despite being really constrained in the way that it's made, has a real depth in its image making. It was my, it's yeah. easily become one of my best films of the year. It it's won great. the competition at IFA Documentary uh, Film Festival. It really, yeah. really deserves it. I think it's-, it's I, 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 Yeah, I suspect that uh, even though I didn't catch many films in the on-demand that this was probably one of the picks of them because I can't imagine that many were better than this. This yeah. is really good. So um, there's the Sydney Film Festival and now we are back to No Time to Die. Man, the Sydney Film Festival's over. There's no more. There's no anyway, more, but there are other no time to die. There's, and there's other there's, there's big films coming out by the end of the year. And you know what? We have the shortest time to wait, June 8th, I think it is, for Sydney yeah. Film, Film Festival 69. We hope they do something uh, special next year mm. uh, because uh, use the MIFI iconography. But anyhow, uh, it's only nine months to wait, less. To clarify, MIF put a giant 69 on their poster for the cancelled MIF 69. I, I don't see Sydney doing that. Yeah. But we'll... It might. It might. Who it knows? might. But we'll, we'll, we have not long, not long to wait, but we are talking No Time to Die. Full spoiler warning, this, from here on in, this is a spoiler discussion. We are spoiling No Time to Die. Spoilers. Spoilers. Snape kills Dumbledore. <laughs> Some idiot ruined that for me. Andrew in high right. school. Still hate him. Anyway. Maybe I should uh, yeah. Is it okay to say that as a joke now? Is are we past this? No, we're past it. Me? It's like the Truman show is a you know simulation. Yeah. And but here's the thing, I'm still feeling bad. Like, what if someone who doesn't know Harry Potter listens to our podcast? But that's the thing. No one who doesn't know that is going to be listening. Relative time is fine. Like there was a terrible uh, Hobbs and Shaw film, which were in the end of Game of Thrones, only a few months after it came out. You need, you need to wait a certain amount of time. That book came out in what, 04, 03, 04? I think it's more like 05, that one. Okay, so it's, so it's been 16 years. Anyhow, we're not talking Harry Potter. We're, we're talking, talking about, about how James Bond dies. He fucking dies. James Bond dies, guys. Yeah. Dead. Yeah, and I love how they do it. They don't want to leave any ambiguity. So they have a missile hit but point blank range. It's like, he is gone. And you get to actually see him blow up. I was thinking that too. I was thinking like, he's going to, will, will he... Would be left and begin. Like, oh no, he's definitely dead. <laughs> uh, before we get into that, yeah. I want to note just quickly the hilarious ways in which MI6 screw up. They let a crazy Genesis Russian scientist um, make personal phone calls from the lab to a supervillain so they can arrange for this bad nanobot virus to get out there. They let the supervillain who they've imprisoned continue to control his evil empire by literally his evil eye for like, what, six years? Speaking of the evil eye of the, the Cyclops dude, yeah. yeah, what's up with, um, you pointed this out, what's up with how he's a Spectre guy at the beginning of the movie and then they kill everyone from Spectre 
and uh, he remains the henchman. Did they just miss this in the in the rewrites? I, I think there's probably one line they just probably cut, but this needed a small explanation. It's like, okay, you're the supervillain now. They all just migrate to the new Dr. Evil. Is, is that how it happens? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you're right. Like all the, all the henchmen like, like you are now my leader. Yeah, pretty much. Sorry. I think they have a henchman for hire industry or something, or like, you know, the, where you get your party hacks, you get your party henchmen. Yeah. It's, it's like, like it's, yeah, you know, you're sometimes they work like it's like Star Wars Nine, where like it's like a, Rami Malek has a billion death stars, so I guess we all work for him now. Yeah, but basically, basically, the logic this film is working on. Yeah. So there's just so much. I, I love that what they refer to as disputed territory. It's technically Russian sovereign territory at the moment, but I love that like there's all these major world powers who are like going towards it's like the British just casually bombing your territory. Um. Hey, England, so let me get this straight. You released this nanobot virus, put all of us in danger, and now you're bombing us. Cool, okay. cool, we're, we're okay with this. I saw someone make a good point on the internet the other day, which is why do, they, why do they fire missiles at the island? I know they, I know it's because that we must destroy this, but surely at this point we can just send some commandos to like bomb it, like remote detonate it. But then that wouldn't look as cool. There's no, like this because everyone's dead. At that point, everyone's dead. Like, there's no reason why Bond has to stay behind and die on the island. I guess, you know, he heroically sacrificed himself because he was touched by the plot device that means Bond must die now because he can't touch anyone because he has the Hercules virus. All right. Otherwise, right. there's no reason. All right. Let's talk about this ending. People are getting angry because James Bond dies. I actually don't have a problem with this. Here is why. It is not inconsistent with the series that he dies. It is inconsistent with the series if he doesn't come out on top of the end and defeat the villain. And well, I'm, I'm okay with... <laughs> Sorry. Yeah. No. So, no, that, was... sure. um, <laughs> that... that would have been the old way of ending one of these movies. It's like, Bond always comes out on top. Keeping the British agenda up, sir. Um, what, was the, what was the terrible Moonraker line? I think he's attempting re-entry, sir. Yeah. Actually, um, can I just say, just before, on cue... If Wishaw sticks with it, I think he could be the best Q. I think he's great in this. I really like he's him. Terrific, he's yeah. I, I, I love the scene with him. I love that he has a boyfriend and cats he's excited for. Um, it doesn't bother. It's not inconsistent with the conventions of the genre that he dies. We've seen so many different stories about Bond and Bond keeps reinventing itself and has a loose canon as we discussed earlier. So what's wrong with for once giving us a story where James Bond dies, especially because, you know, there's no need for nerds to cry about this because at the end we're reassured that James Bond will return. Right? He's going to regenerate Doctor Style. It's basically exactly. it's basically think, Doctor Who now. Yeah, I think it's perfectly legitimate to want to dramatize a moment where James Bond dies in a mission. Yeah. There's and no problem really, with that. And we're just seeing like it was really on with on a major secret service. The same when Patrick Trown came in and talked to Who, they had to decide, okay, how do we treat this? The amazing mock line. In on the Manchester Secret Service, does it happen to the other fella? Just kind of acknowledges, okay, there's a regeneration, there's a change, it's just happening again, there'll be a new bond, it's perfectly fine, and they should continue with um, the current set of MQ and Money Penny. By the way, as a trio, this MQ and Money Penny, they might be the best trio. I really like Fines and Harris and Wishaw. I think they're wonderful. I hope they stay on. They are great, and uh, I wish that they'll do something like what you're suggesting and what they did with. Judy Dench staying on as M even after they and Bernard Lee and Desmond yeah. Llewellyn but, and but the M one is different. But the M one is different because the Craig series tries to have its own beginning and end, and yet it maintains some continuity. Like they acted like M has been Bond's M forever when she retired in that, even though the, the Craig series hadn't been going that long. So 
there is space for them to do the same thing with this trio of Money, Penny, Q, M, who are great, work well together, have great chemistry. Um, but I'm worried that they're not going to do that, that they're going to throw everything out and uh, say, you know, new bond, new, new universe, everything's new. Um, now that they've given a firm end to it and said Daniel Craig's Bond dies. No, with, I hope they don't. With but, the consistent logic of the series, there's no reason to do so. If you find actors who are better, good for you. But mm -hmm. I think these guys are great. I do too. Now, but I do, however, think that there's an inconsistency with the canon and with the convention with Bond dying in the way he does. Now, the thing with Bond's character is that even by the skin of his teeth, he always gets there, he pushes, he survives the odds, he does these crazy stunts to get out of places, and there is enough of a setup in this particular scene where it showed he has enough time and enough space and enough distance, even though he's been shot, to get out because he's James Bond. And I think we, we saw, so I, I, that's a problem for me. There's oh, this request which they wanted for a big moment, but it's yeah. more, it's, I think it's actually worse than that. They wanted to impress the idea of this tragic figure who's alone. We see Bond start the film like this. The setup of this film, as crazy as nanobots are, is that Bond can't touch anyone if he wants his wife. And it's the other thing, his daughter, which I'm also fine with, cool, Bond is a daughter, to, to survive. I had imagine, if oh, the end, imagine if the end of the series had been what perfectly could have been legitimate in pretending to die, getting that little submarine which was available yeah. and going away, yeah. knowing that he'd be tragically alone forever. That makes the same point. It makes more sense and it's more enduring. And I think as one example, it's what they could have done to not break with the convention and canon. Bundle, bundle on an island like in Doctor No, but not meeting a, a- Or at the beginning of this film. Yeah, at the beginning of this film, exactly. On the note of Bond's daughter, I read a very interesting review of this film, which made me reconsider some aspects of it, even though I, I, I disagree with the review on the overall quality of the film, which is Walter Joel's review at Film Freak Central. He has a, a very well-researched Bond nut points out that Bond's daughter in this film comes from an unfinished manuscript that Ian Fleming was writing, or that it was something that he- that, Thunderbolt. Right, it was, yeah, it was something that, that Fleming wanted to introduce into Bond. And uh, a lot of ideas in this movie seem to be um, ideas from the letter books of the series and and those that we planned and yet to come fine I, yeah i think i think that idea of moving it in that direction is great and paying tribute is great but ultimately with what we were talking about about how dour this whole thing is who felt sad when bond died for me it was so overplayed and so so as you say you're distracted by the fact that bond is just giving up um even though yeah it would suck not to be able to touch your wife or daughter ever again um you're distracted Anyone. by Sorry? For anyone. For anyone. Clear. Yeah. You're distracted by the futility of it. On a plot level, it, it doesn't quite make much sense, but it's such a played up big moment that I was surprised as the film was working a little bit emotionally on the early on to find myself feeling nothing. It's the death of James Bond. No, for the reasons discussed, I thought I didn't feel it, but also. It's not, and I'm good with it not being final because James will return, but it's not final. So it feels rather cheap and a gimmicky than resolutory, mm. which is the theme, I think, tone that you would normally want in a situation like this. So I don't think it lands very well. I mean, we can see it as gimmicky. Do you think the next Bond is going to be his daughter growing up and taking over the mantle, essentially? No. no I don't have a Bond being a woman for a much more detailed analysis, which we're not going to get into in the course of this uh, podcast. But no, I don't think that's going to happen. For me, honestly, for me, James Bond as a woman is far more gimmicky than a story when James Bond dies. Because, like, I think, like, the only thing James Bond has other than a world, and the, a thing even stronger than the world of James Bond is this idea of the character of James Bond 
And once you said you're saying like, let's make a James Bond with a woman, it's kind of an admission that the whole thing is a marketing exercise, I think. I disagree for the reason that I think, that, that, again, it comes down to core convention. He's someone, Bond has always been someone who is emotionally removed and will use people and people who are attracted to. In some cases, he's shown to be attracted to other people. Therefore, I'm fine with Bond being one from that perspective. I think there will be an element of the classic series of the criticism of the classic misogyny and chauvinism that will inevitably lost if um, James Bond becomes a woman. But I don't think that's such a core element of the series. I think you can explore other aspects uh, depending on the gender of the character. So it doesn't bother, it wouldn't bother me. If they handled it well, got the right actress, then fine. Well, it's the question of is Bond a character or is Bond a, a series of tropes? And the, I think the character has a consistency, even though he evolves with the different versions of him. There's things that we considered Ian Fleming's James Bond 007, right? I don't think yeah. gender is an immutable characteristic here. I think um, an element of emotional remove, I think an element of self-loathing, I think there's an element and elements and, and willingness to use the people to ultimately advance the quote-unquote queen country. And I don't think that is um, exclusive to any particular gender. Sure. I, but... I do think on a lot, it would be a very difficult writing exercise to try to do female 007 because I oh, think question. not just in terms of misogyny, but in many, many ways, Bond is, is tied to masculinity, you know, to ideals of like lone hero and, and things like that. I'm not saying these easy. things are tied. To, yeah, I'm not saying these things can only be done by men, but like it's very tied to masculine myth making in many ways. I'm not, I'm not, I, I applied the Doctor Who principle. I'm not saying James Bond should be a woman. I'm saying it could. Cast the best performer. Mm, but Bond is, but Doctor Who is, has always been. Doctor Who is more, different. Yeah, Doctor Who is very different in ways I won't get into in the limited time we have here. But um, yeah, I'm fine with... the Doctor is an alien, essentially. Yeah. No, the Doctor, gender has never been a central part of the yes, Doctor as it has been a part say. of the James Bond canon, no question. I know that's people right. were angry when Jodie Wood came in, but. They're just uh, dumb nerds fighting okay. a cultural war. So I'm saying who cares? I care, but cast the best performer. Anything else? Yeah, absolutely. Um, Rami Malek. Okay, did his plan make any sense to you in the end? What no, I want to what kill everyone. I want to. I want the world to be tidy. This was stupid. Again, they're falling back on the classic Thanos. Let's kill everyone, which isn't as entertaining as let's kill. Hey, how cool is kill the idea of someone who was screwed over by Spectre wanted to kill all the Spectre agents and, and clashing with Bond? Awesome. Yeah. I wonder, why didn't they make that the movie? And imagine if it had just been because I want to kill everyone associated with any Spectre agent. So I'm going to kill Madeline and her daughter. And Bond's like, wait a minute, she's not. She's nothing to do with this. That's a cool plot. Yeah. The, it's the problem of escalation in Hollywood storytelling, where everything has to be the biggest, the most world-ending. Because how are we going to compete with the other movies where the world, fate of the world is at stake? Which is a completely, I think, wrong approach to storytelling. Yeah, but, but that was the, that was kind of the problem where. The first half of the film, uh, he did uh, Lucifer, sorry, Lucifer, Lucifer, or Lucifer, however you want to pronounce his uh, name, Saffron essentially, uh, does have a personal uh, gripe with Bond and Madeline. And you thought this is going to be a more personal story. So it's a personal revenge saga rather than a world ending saga, which was a nice twist. When it did go the world ending way, I was just like, why did we have to go and make that twist? Because the personal story was still making. So much more impact. But there were yeah. things I liked about the personal impact. I liked the fact that it lent us this amazing villain layer. And just on the practical elements of ending the world, the the acid pit where 
tell me if, if my interpretation is wrong. My understanding was that they were literally screening the world's water for DNA samples from all around the world, which is eerie and terrifying and amazing for a villain-led setup. On this, um, and just to elaborate on the title drop, I love the scene where the woman of color shoves the crazy eugenicist into the acid pit. Like, yeah. awesome. More of that. Nice title drop. The idea you, you're suggesting about the nanobots in the water and the, the acid water is, is incredible. Why did the film not milk that? Yeah. That's terrifying. That's that's especially terrifying in, in the COVID age. Yeah. And where we're seeing yeah. these data leaks. That's it. Yeah, there, there was territory for this film to get really interesting and scary in that last part, but instead we're caught up in this soap opera of, I've got your daughter, no, you've got the daughter, no, she's running around, you know, and Rami Malek giving, I must say, a fairly, by the series standards, beautifully written Before You Die, Mr. Bond speech, but it's still ultimately a Before You Die, Mr. Bond speech, and this section of the film is so prolonged, and it's like, hold on, I've been here for nearly three hours, this is not that serious enough to, you know, or interesting enough to justify this, especially while they're straining for this importance in Malik's character at the same time that, as we've just discussed, his motivations don't make sense. The film's just not consistent enough to pull off the seriousness it's aiming for, I think. I enjoyed that there was momentum throughout this film. I liked the scene in the Faroe Islands doubling from Norway, even though we didn't need to see CGI jeeps. Um, Mm. crushing people which just doesn't work for the reasons discussed earlier i liked a great scene where uh, they're running throughout italy uh, what i loved with casino royale and some of the earlier bond films that showed character development through action and the amazing scene where bond is in the car with madeline just waiting to hear her like confess and knowing that these people are coming with the guns to shoot and just okay. break down the car amazing character and action wonderfully written that is what i look for james bond films and it establishes at the beginning that bond is ready to die yes true that much is at stake for him you know he he's not tied to the world of the living so much anymore which maybe is meant to sell the ending but ultimately doesn't because over the course of this narrative we feel that Bond comes up from that point and has something to live for now i guess at the end we can say it's been taken away from him but i agree with your core premise that bond doesn't give up like that no, and we, we saw with the amazing scene where he tries to rescue Felix from an oil rig. Yes, right. that's right. Really well staged. There's a lot of good sequences in this regard. I enjoyed myself. I'll watch it again in a few months. I'd recommend it. For me, honestly, the length of it is the, is the big sticking point. Like, I struggle to recommend a Bond film that's this long. Even I, I'm telling, telling people, like, yeah, go see it. Um, but, you know, enjoy the first half because it, it'll yeah, all but that's the thing, the first half is so long, it's 90 minutes. So it's still a proper feature length first half. Yeah, no, there's a lot of bang for your buck. Yeah, so there's more like to recommend half. than not than not. Yeah. It's okay. not like the second half of the film is terrible, but it's worse than terrible, which is disappointing. You know, but Billy I had a good time. Well. I was never bored in this film. I uh I, 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 I the crazy I, ending on the on the island. There's still things to recommend about it because as you say, the production design of this um this garden of death and, and this huge complex is terrific, right? There's, um, there's still interesting things going on, but even the action in the second half of the film, I feel becomes just kind of like more boring, handheld, shaky shots, um, not such clear visual dynamics as what we have in the first half of the film. It feels like on every level, they just kind of drop the ball past a certain point. I wonder, like, was this production rushed? Well, like, the, cu the, cu the cubist scene had such amazing geography. 
and use of the space. How yeah. good was the Michael Myers-esque opening with the villain, like coming into the house with the mask? Oh, that was cool. This like the slasher movie with the girl running from this villain. But what what's up with his his mask was really cool, but then it ends up just kind of falling by the wayside. That we wanted to disguise these again, scars, villains of scars, guys. You know, Pilm's bad yeah. about the facial scar and they're Russian. Are we ever going to move past the physical deformity equals evil? I hope so. I hope so. We you did have a be beautiful man blaming us and being a bad guy in this. You know, well, very yeah. poorly written bad guy. You know what would be the awesome, an awesome apology? Because, you know, I was thinking, you know, scars, yeah, they've been in combat. And I thought, hang on, let's have a scarred James Bond taking on beautiful Aryan villains. Yeah. I'm cool with that. <laughs> I'd, I'd watch that movie. I would. Yeah. Yeah. Where, where, where's that film? Do we have much more to say about this one? There's not a lot more to say. I, I had a I had a great time. I think it's Craig's second best Bond film. Yeah, I think that's probably true. Yeah. After Casino Royale. Casino Royale's the best. Yeah. No, no, Royale, no, no. I think Skyfall was still better than this. I'm not sure. A Skyfall, um, Skyfall is very much going for like a fun Bond. This one... Um, you know, it's a very different beast. But what Casino Royale definitely had over this, and I think we can all agree on, is Casino Royale nailed the emotional stakes and the relationship better than this one. Oh, yeah, totally. So Casino Royale is one of the best Bond films. I think it's the second best, honestly, after GoldenEye. There's also Campbell. Yeah, he knew what he was doing. There's also, and, and this is harsh because of Skyfall, because I like Skyfall a lot. I think that the action in Skyfall is just lazier. And I find the ending of this more satisfying than the uh, the ending of Skyfall, though I did like the ending of Skyfall very well, much. I think the ending of Skyfall was way better than this. Uh, I think yeah. the ending of Skyfall is more satisfying, but I agree and, and feels like it has more emotional punch to me. Um, I agree on the emotional punch, yes. But... Yeah, but um, you're, I think you're right that Skyfall relies a lot on the visual trickery of Roger Deakins' expressionistic lighting. The actual action direction isn't that great, the action direction in this film is much more inventive, especially in the, in the earlier parts of the film. Just compare the scenes set under a frozen lake. Yeah, that's right. That's um, one, one more note on this, uh, the final action beats and Rami Malek's character. Putting it, it, I, you feel kind of short-charged watching him be the one to finally off Bond, you know, at least in terms of like shooting him and, and having Bond bleeding out and they get to have these talks about how you and I were both were both that alone. That was awesome, I've got to say. I did like the analogy they drew between the two. That speech was cool, but because he's a lacking villain in other respects, that it kind of feels like, really? Like they're building this guy up to be bigger than he should be? Yeah, I mean, if anyone should have killed Bond, it should have been Blofeld. Blofeld should have got, got the privilege. No, he already... I mean, if Blofeld came back and, uh, he, you know, somehow they died together, that would be... But, you know, I guess we're holding on to the idea of what Blofeld was in the original series, and Blofeld just is kind of a more boring dude in, in this uh, reboot. And, and now we have to ask ourselves, did they, in fact, delay because of the plot of the film? How yes. now just is it to COVID? I think they said... Yeah, I think, look, it was the first film to be delayed before other films moved out of the way and it, and it became... Siri, uh, sorry as it became clear how serious the pandemic is, um, it, I think, was a preemptive delay because they thought it's not the right climate to release a film about a bioweapon. Or just something where if you touch or have contact with someone, then you can infect your, you can be impacted or affect others. It's yeah. not directly analogous to COVID, but there are elements thereof, which are very, which will be very present in the mind of any viewer. 
Yeah, there's resonances that they probably wanted to avoid. And they probably are kicking themselves not releasing it in November 2019 when it was supposed to. Yeah. Yeah, why did they not release November 2019? They wanted to do some reshoots and there were some minor tweaks. Did, Bad call. Did they, well, I mean, hindsight's 2020. Did, did those reshoots even get to happen? I think, I think so. I think that there were, yes, I believe so from memory. Right. Yeah. Fair enough. Yeah, um, it, it was good. I like this cue. I like the setup of the film. Uh, there's a very cool heist scene at the beginning. Yeah. All staged. There's a lot, like there's just a lot going on here. Which yeah. I think is more of a benefit of the film than traction. I don't think it's overwhelming or over, or mostly not overstuffed. Yeah. Walter yeah. Shaw's review as a as a, a Bond aficionado that I mentioned earlier made a good point about the title, about the multiple ways you can read it, but he thought the most resonant was like that this is no time to die. Like the world's in a really dark place. We need heroes. Like no country for old men almost. I like that. I like that too. It makes sense with Felix and Bond going out. Well, what, what's the line of Hot's line? No. Time, time to die. die. Yeah, exactly. The way the title <laughs> drops you. But yeah, I really recommend that review for a, a pretty deep reading of the film um, that points out a lot of its sources. Cool villain. It, 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 it brings back a lot of the stuff I missed from Bond films. Cool villain layers, insane, albeit stereotypical villains. While and... taking it seriously, there's that, there's that tension of these kind of wacky elements and the seriousness of this. Sometimes yeah, it works. And I, I just got to say, like, the iconography of this film, remember that we're dealing with a villain who was impacted by the events of the Cold War. And then the final sequence takes place in a, what they refer to as disputed area. And it is a disputed area. Uh, let's not forget that uh, Japan and Russia haven't actually signed a formal armistice agreement. So it feels like there's elements of the past that are unresolved that are coming back, which mm -hmm. is very resonant without with Bond's narrative and throughout the entire film. So I think there's a clever way they anchored uh, this element throughout. Yeah. So I give the film credit there. Yeah, that's, is that No Time to Die? That's it. I think that's about it. Yeah, it's in cinemas now. We'll be in cinemas for a long time. I think so. Uh, everyone's going to see it because it's a Bond film. I think he, this movie is going to be playing till at least Boxing Day. Probably longer. Probably longer. Yeah. It's just, it'll, it'll get some word of mouth. People are like, oh, another Bond. Uh -huh. Yeah, uh, Bond does really well when everyone's recommending it. And I think this one's good enough that it won't do as well as Skyfall, but it'll do better than Spectre. Yeah. I like Spectre. People handle Spectre. I enjoyed myself. I thought it was fine. It was yeah. okay. My, my Craig ranking goes um, Casino Royale, this Skyfall, Spectre, Quantum. I do like Quantum. Yeah, we watched it recently. I, might, I, I, I like all these films. I'll have to rewatch Skyfall um, to know where it ranks, but I think my ranking probably mirrors yours, Glenn. And now, and they've said they're going to cast someone next year, or like look to cast someone from next year. What were you going to say, Brett? I was just going to switch Skyfall and this one, but other than that, yeah, the ranking. Yeah, right. Um, Feels great. Yeah, uh, I think I'll wait a few years to cast the next Bond. I think there's no two year gaps between films like they used to. They did between Casino Royale and Quantum. I think, though, given that they actually ended this with Bond dies, they're going to want to oh, do yeah. like a four year gap at least. Yeah. Give it some space. Give it some space. Oh, Bond. I did like waiting to the credits and seeing James Bond will return at the end. Yeah, yeah. It's reassuring, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Bond. Imagine if this one did not end with that. Yeah. <laughs> that would be fun. That would be great.
Yeah, yeah. So the biggest time bomb, just shout out, guys. Come to Australia. Like, you've yeah. never been to Australia or New Zealand. There's we, plenty yeah, of cool right. stuff to blow up here. Yeah, I mean, David Bowie came. Bond can come. Yeah. But yeah, um, if, uh, I mean, of course, Bowie's way cool. Tour, I mean, the list sounds for you. I don't know why Bowie's on my mind this morning, but wouldn't it be funny if they had been like, you know, if Barbara Broccoli and, and various, you know, associated people that were giving the press line afterwards, like, you know, it's like, will James Bond return? It didn't say that in the credits. It's like, hmm, we're just not sure. You know, we really have to think about this. We I want mean, to earn more money with this massive IP we own. Yeah, yeah, that's right. We we really we really believe in the ending of this film, and and right now we're standing by it. And then the the uh, elation of the easily played masses when they reveal that actually Bond will return. I'm glad they didn't do that. I'm glad they're being upfront. James Bond will return. Yes. So will we? As will everyone's favorite producer-driven series. Yeah. So, uh, so Bond. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, cool. We'll return next week. Next week we're doing Power of the Dog. Yeah. And we are doing Last Night in Soho. Last, we'll do just a little bit on Power of the Dog because if you guys are interested, um, these guys have seen it and discussed it pretty extensively already. Um, I've now seen it. I'll add my thoughts. I'll give a capsule review on Venom because I'm not sure these guys are going to see it, but I it's have. Venom. Yeah. Uh, the new one. Let there be cottage. Isn't it like 90 minutes long? Yeah, that's one of the best things about it. Good on them. Yeah, I, I really respect that. And uh, we'll mostly talk about Last Night in Soho. There are some divided opinions among the film Fight Club boys. So uh, expect no. a fight once again. But not on Empower the Dog. I think we all liked this one. Yes, we all liked it. It's really, really good. It's really yeah, and good. Uh, again, um, yeah, good movies out at the moment. Bad Luck Banging now out in cinemas in Australia. Um, a real going out on a limb choice for the distributor to put a film like that out in general release and not just keep it to film festivals. So support it if you're into interesting, unusual films. And I also really recommend um, Wheel of Fortune and Fantasy at the Japanese Film Festival, which we, me and Brett caught at uh, SFF and really loved. So, uh, you know, lots of good movies. Movies. Have a wonderful night. Enjoy movies. Enjoy James Bond. We will return as well. Good night.